and Hag Sameach to you. Please join with our family as we usher in the Sabbath. commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. Now Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri HaGahafen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. With it being the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we have matzah for this week. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Olam, Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Husbands, now let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for my wonderful wife that you have given to me. I thank you, Lord, for her, and for I pray that you would bless her with your very best blessing. Bless her as she sees about the ways of the household, as she takes care of the children and educates them. And Father, I confess that I love her with all of my heart. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless her on this Sabbath day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. It's okay. Amen. <laughs> now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. 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 Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. surrounding me let it break at your name 
still call the sea to still the raging beat still every wave at your name Yeshua Yeshua you make darkness tremble Yeshua Yeshua you silence fear Yeshua Yeshua you make the darkness tremble Yeshua Yeshua Call these bones to live and call these lungs to sing once again. I will praise Yeshua, Yeshua. You make the darkness tremble, Yeshua, Yeshua. You silence fear. Yeshua, Yeshua, you make the darkness tremble. Yeshua, Yeshua, your name is a light that the shadows can deny. Your name cannot be overcome. Tremble, Yeshua, Yeshua, you silence fear, Yeshua, Yeshua, you make the darkness tremble, Yeshua, Yeshua, your name is light that the shadows can deny. Your name is alive, forever lifted high. Your name cannot be overcome. Yeshua. Darkness tremble. Yeshua, Yeshua, you make the darkness tremble.
Water turning wild Open the eyes of the blind There's no one like you None like you Into the darkness you shine Out of the ashes you rise There's no one like you No, none like you Cause I got us greater I got us stronger God, you are higher than any other I got us healer Awesome in power, our God, our God. Water, you turn into wine. Open the eyes of the blind. There's no one like you. No, not like you Into the darkness you shine Out of the ashes we rise There's no one like you No, not like you Cause I got us greater I got us stronger God, you are higher than any other God, Awesome in power, our God, our God. Cause our God is greater, our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer. Awesome in power, our God, our God. And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? What could stand Cause our God is greater, our God is stronger God, you are higher than any other Our God is healer, awesome in power Our God, our God Cause our God is greater, our God is stronger God, you are higher than any other Our God is healer, awesome in power Our God our God, and if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? What could stand against? Our God is greater, our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. 
I got a sealer, awesome and power, our God, our God. Our God is greater, our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power. Our God, our God. Keep me to your Feast of Unleavened Bread. We're eight days after Passover. And on the seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the scripture calls for us to have a high Sabbath. There's a high Sabbath on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened and a high Sabbath again on the seventh day. Uh, before I take you into some scriptures and teach you about that, um, we're going to kind of have a, shall we say, kind of a reality check here. Uh, I've been in the Messianic movement for a bunch of years, and uh, others are coming into. And one of the things that captures us, and I say that in the most positive way possible, is the observance of Sabbath and the festivals of the Lord. And it becomes the focal point of our personal Messianic faith. We, of course, learn the great story of the Messiah by keeping the feast. And we have these times throughout the year to be in fellowship with one another and to enjoy congregational life and in the fellowship of our other brethren. And in particular, in the springtime, we kick it all off, so to speak, with Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And as you all know, during this week, we have been eating unleavened bread, and we're now coming to the final day of eating unleavened bread. Now, let me tell you, uh, my observation is that in the messianic movement, that when this day comes, there's great excitement. And you can go from congregation to congregation, assembly to assembly, and you will find this great excitement. Because at the conclusion of this day, we get to eat bagels and croissants and pizza and all kinds of leavened bread. And we, of course, for the last seven days, and including Passover as the eighth, we have just been utterly starved from having this puffed up leavened bread. It's like we've been very austere, eating only unleavened bread this week. I think you all identify with that and uh, understand what I'm talking about. However, that is not what the commandment tells us about. 
The commandment says that the great celebration is supposed to be on the final day of the Feast of Unleavened. We're not supposed to be celebrating that it's coming to a conclusion and that we eat, eat, eat leavened bread again. It's really about something else. And that's what I would like to make on this Sabbath, bring your attention to those things. Now, I want to cover a couple of basics, and then we will go into some more of the detail. Let us go back to Leviticus chapter 23, which is the chapter which specifies to us all of the feasts of Israel, and it gives specific commandments to us about the observance of it. And in particular, I want to take you to the commandment that has to do with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the, the seven days we call the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So let us go now uh, to, um, let's see, it's we are in chapter 23, and then we're going to begin at verse 6, just a few verses here in chapter 23. Well, let me start at verse 5. You know, in the first month on the 14th day of the month at the twilight is the Lord's Passover. So we started eating unleavened bread really at Passover, but that's not necessarily the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's just Passover. Then, verse 6, then on the 15th day, of the same month, there is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. But for seven days you should present an offering by fire to the Lord. And on the seventh day is a holy convocation, and you should not do any laborious work. It's from these verses that we come up with the expression that we say on the first day of unleavened bread, it's a high Sabbath. We do no laborious work, mean we're going to have a Sabbath. We're going to cease from work and treat it as though it's a Sabbath. But we call it a high Sabbath because it's specifically specified in the Scripture. Let me tell you when the high Sabbaths of the Feast of Unleavened Bread always are. Always are. On the 15th of Nisan is the first one, and on the 21st of Nisan is the last one. Today, as we begin the service there, Shabbat, it's 21 Nisan. So this is the seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened. This is the day specified by the Scripture Do we treat it as a high Sabbath, a holy convocation to the Lord, and, um, you know, that as we observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, so we've got these high Sabbaths kind of as bookends, you know, on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But why did God specify that? Why did he do it that way. Well, there, some of it you can understand there's very special sacrifices and very special elements of the feast that's done in the temple service. If you go to Numbers chapter 29, it'll specify certain specific sacrifices in the temple being offered for all of Israel, uh, including some bulls and rams and lambs and, and uh, so forth, a big feast. Uh, that comes from the temple, and the nation is to join in in as a part of that feast. Now, that's for the temple part. That's the special stuff. Now, we don't have temple. We don't have priests operating, so the sacrificial part of the holiday we're not able to observe. We're scattered in the nations, but the dates are still real with us. 
and having a Sabbath is still with us uh, to complete, even though we can't keep the feasts, uh, in terms of the sacrificial worship to the Lord by, by the Levitical priests. But we have to go and ask ourselves, well, why did we have high Sabbaths at all? Why don't we just, for seven days, we eat unleavened bread, and we're remembering that our ancestors, when they came out of Egypt, they didn't have time for their bread to rise. They were highly mobile that first week escaping from Egypt. And so we're commanded as a commemoration of that, as a memorial to that, we eat unleavened bread like they did, uh, so we join in with that. Now, I could, let me go ahead and just tell you some of the message in this, what the Lord's doing, and the reason why he has established a memorial to do this is that we are to identify not only with the Passover. Uh, if you recall, in the Passover, we are to tell our children, it is I whom the Lord passed over. It is I whom the Lord brought out of Egypt. And we're to teach our children every year at the Passover these things. And we are instructed that the proper way to observe the Passover is to consider yourself there being personally passed over uh, by the angel of the Lord. Uh, but when it comes to this Feast of Unleavened Bread, the, the emphasis then is, I want you to eat and internalize. I want you to eat the same bread they ate. You know, for that seven days, you know, I want you to eat what they did. And it's to draw you back to the history of what actually took place. And so we memorialize it. And the Lord has called for this to be done. Every year he wants us to remember what transpired, what took place there with our ancestors and to identify with them, in this case, eating the same bread they ate. So we have this high Sabbath on um, the um, first day of the Feast of Unleavened, and then we have this high Sabbath on the seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened. So what exactly took place well, you know about the Passover. You know, the angel of the Lord passed over, and the next morning they get up, and the firstborn of Egypt have, have been uh, uh, killed. And at that point, Pharaoh says, get out. Uh, and so everybody's packing up. On the very next day, that's when they started leaving all of their homes in Egypt, and they started collecting. And the Scripture tells us they gathered first, in Egypt, in an area of Egypt, they all kind of came from all the different places they had been, and they all collected first at a place at a city called Sukkot, and they called it. That's Sukkot means temporary dwellings or huts or tents, and their temporary dwellings is they they didn't they left their houses and so they put themselves in tents and huts, and this is the first time that Israel, who was in Egypt, became collected as an assembly. This is the first element of it. This is part of the reason why Sukkot is called the Feast of Ingathering, is because there is a gathering element that's associated with Sukkot. And so uh, they gather there, and now they become a body, and at this point, I can assure you, it was like a giant mob. 
There was no organization whatsoever to it. There was Moses and Joshua that were in charge. And beyond that, this thing is a ragtag. You can't believe what this thing looked like. It, it, I'm telling you, herding cats would have looked more organized. Herding cattle from Texas up to Abilene to get on the railroads was a lot more organized than what this thing was. But but they all gathered. And one of the fee, one of the feast days, the high Sabbath, is to commemorate. The first one is to commemorate. We all got together. We're not in the individual communities in Egypt. That the that the house of Israel is is uh, is there. So uh, that's why we have this first high Sabbath. It's the first element of assembly uh, for the children of Israel. Now, they are traveling. They are moving. And Moses starts getting them. And if you recall, historically, that they um, began their journey in kind of a weird direction. They weren't going northeast toward the promised land where the modern land of Israel is today. Instead, they were traveling somewhat south and east. And where they were going was literally into deeper parts of Egypt. They, 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 were, the, they were going outside of the cities, but, but the area that land they were going into, and, it, and, and there's a natural body of water called the Red Sea that's going to be blocking their future route anywhere near the promised land. And this is part of the reason why Pharaoh and his men said, oh, they have entrapped themselves in the wilderness. You know, they're going the wrong way. And so that's the reason why Pharaoh had a change of heart, and he decided after a couple of days, I'm going to go. I'm going to go bring them back. I'm, I'm going to go capture them again. I'm going to defeat them. And so you have this period of this week uh, in which they've gathered. They're they're traveling along. They're leaving where Pharaoh and his uh, chariots are at. Pharaoh makes the decision, hey, I'm coming back after him. And by the end of the week, Pharaoh has come with his chariots, and he's going to confront the children of Israel. And they are up against the banks of the Red Sea. That's where they've gotten themselves to in seven days. Now, if you just step back in this situation in real time and kind of understood what was going on, you would have concluded some of the following things. One... Moses must not be a really great tactical leader because he just walked us right into a disaster. Because here comes Pharaoh and we got no place to go. There's mountains here, there's sea there, and here comes Pharaoh. What in the world are we going to do? And in fact, uh, you hear in the scripture in Exodus chapter 12, this dilemma of where they're confronted from. Now, they had been redeemed in Egypt. They had been purchased out of slavery. They were now made as free men to walk right into an absolute disaster. What was the benefit of becoming free men if all we're going to do is die? I mean, that doesn't make sense at all whatsoever. Well, you know the story that um, God directed Moses to raise his staff. He parted the Red Sea, and he blocked Pharaoh's chariots, 
And so that the children of Israel crossed on dry land across the Red Sea and got on the other side of the Red Sea, which was out of Egypt. It was no longer the territory of Egypt. It was the, it was the, the wilderness area. And at such event that God then removed the blockage, allowed Pharaoh to rush in and let the waters close back on them. And he uh, sank Pharaoh and all of his chariots. By the way, chariots are not designed to float well at sea. And uh, there was a great salvation that took place. Now, that's the point that I want to make specifically with you. And let me just say it to you very simply. We have a tendency in the faith to slur certain religious terms. And I want to talk about two particular terms that we slur together a lot. One of them is redemption, and the other one is salvation. Now, if you walk up to the average Christian, the average person who's been educated by the church, and you say, okay, what is redemption? He is going to give you, if he, if he can give you the basic Christian definition, he's going to, we've been purchased out of slavery and our sins have been taken care of. Praise the Lord. That is correct. That's what the Bible teaches. Then you ask him, what is salvation? And he'll go, well, that's the same thing. Or he, he just stumbles and can't find a distinguishing definition for that as compared to the other. And the typical Christian, he asks for God's redemption, asks for forgiveness, uh, and immediately announces he has salvation. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting they don't. What I am suggesting to you is that the Torah teaches us there's a distinction And that distinction is very important for us to mature and go on in the faith. Basically, it comes down to this. The children of Israel were set free from Pharaoh and were able to begin the process of leaving the land of Israel, but they didn't actually leave the land of Israel, and they didn't get deliverance until they crossed the Red Sea. It's on that day they cross the Red Sea, that we observe the seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because we're commemorating, we've just been saved and delivered out of Egypt. And we show the distinction between the, the, the Passover and the one that is uh, leaving Egypt. And let me put it to you in another comparison. Back at the Passover, when we put the blood on the lentil on the doorpost, if you remember that historically, the angel of the Lord passed over. Who was it that was actually delivered there? Who, who was it that was kept from dying there? It was the firstborn of Israel. It wasn't all of Israel. It was the firstborn of Israel. But when did Israel receive salvation from slavery in Egypt? On the seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's when they were free from Egypt. Now, with that said, I want to read to you what the Scripture tells us specifically. I want you with that 
understanding. I want you to listen a little more closely as to what um, has been transpired. In Exodus chapter 12, this is where it's telling us both what historically took place and was the basis of why God called for a memorialization of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And if you look um, at verse um, chapter 12 and verse um, uh, 42, there's an explanation to the memorialization for Passover that starts this whole process. Verse 42, it is a night to be observed for the Lord for having brought them out from the land of Egypt. This site is for the Lord. This night is for the Lord to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout the generations. Now, the reason why I pointed that out is we have a lot of people that get confused about Passover and in fact, on the internet for this last week leading up to Passover, everybody's having a debate about when exactly was the Passover. Did the Messiah and his disciples really eat the Passover? Did they eat some other meal? Uh, you know, what's the sequence of events, what we call the passion of the Passover? When exactly was he arrested? What day was it? You know, when, when did he die? How many days was he actually in the grave? When, you know, and every year we go through this. By the way, it's not that we messianics are weird. This, thing, this discussion has been going on for a couple of thousand years. And in fact, this is one of the major distinctions and differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees held to the idea that Passover was to be eaten in the home on the eve at the beginning of the 14th of Nisan, just like what the scripture says. But the Pharisees came along and they said, no, no, no. We have the day of Passover, the daytime of the 14th. It's really the evening of the 15th that we really do that. And so there's a full day off. And to get the thing stretched out into eight days, they add one more day at the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Judaism will stop the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the 22nd of Nisan not the 21st, as the scripture calls. And there's been ongoing debates and arguments about that for quite some time. In fact, there were debates going on about that in the days of Yeshua. Um, and to this day, that argument and those that confusion still exists. And now that we believe that the Messiah was in the midst of it, that just adds to the confusion about what, when exactly were these days and, and all that kind of stuff. I am not going to sit here and give you what is my consensus and my judgment on with regard to all these things. The thing I do want you to notice, though, in either of the cases, is that according to verse 42, it's nighttime when the Passover is to be observed. So the emphasis on Passover day that I keep hearing everybody arguing about their different chronology things is completely off point. What is on point is when did they eat the Seder meal, what night? And I submit to you that that is the compelling difference between eating the Passover on the 14th at night or the 15th at night. If you're eating it at nighttime on the 15th, it can't possibly be the 14th of Nisan. 
It can only be the 14th of Nisan if you're eating it the night before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So with that said, you know, as we go through this chronology, let me take you down further so that we can see historically what has uh, taken place. Chapter 13, verse 3. And at this point, um, I want you to know he's finished the instructions for the memorial Passover, And then he comes to verse 3, and at this point, they've crossed the Red Sea. We're not in Egypt. We're not at Passover night anymore. This whole scenario is taking place. We are at the final day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We're at day 7 right now. So beginning at verse 3, here's what it says about this last day. Uh, chapter 13, verse 3, And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, because this is the day that crossed the Red Sea. They are no longer in the land of Egypt. Everything was preparatory of it. At this point, they're out of the land of Egypt. Remember this day that you went out completely from Egypt, from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out with his from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. We're talking during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he said, on this day that I brought you out, do not eat leavened bread. Because it's on the seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they went across the Red Sea. They got out completely out of Egypt, and God delivered them from the Egyptians and saved them. Think about that for a moment. They were saved on that day. Verse 4, On this day in the month of Aviv, you are uh, about to go forth, and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanite, uh, Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall absorb observe this right in this month. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. The emphasis is not on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The emphasis is on the seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But let's examine us. For us, in most Messianic communities, we have the Passover. We start eating unleavened bread. Big deal. Clean the leaven out of the house. You know, a lot of emphasis on it. We're eating unleavened bread. We're making matzah pizzas. We're making matzah candy. Uh, we're grinding up matzah and making matzah ball soup. You know, we're, we're, we're having a great time. We get down to the seventh day, and it just kind of dwindles. Down to, oh, boy, I really am looking forward to some pizza. Do you think looking forward to pizza is really a good symbol of our salvation? I don't think it is. I think it's completely misdirected. What what are we doing other than we're not doing anything? He has called for us to have a feast. Why? To celebrate.
celebrate. We're not in the land of Egypt anymore. We just got delivered from our enemies. You know, given the whole scenario, let's let's take you back into the history, and you're just a regular um, person, and you're back there, and you see the Passover, the, you know, the blood on the doorpost, and the firstborn of that particular house uh, was delivered, it wasn't harmed, firstborn of Egypt, they were all harmed, okay, we're getting ready, we're packing up, we're leaving, okay, these are the events you're going through, okay, what do you think about that, well, I guess we're leaving, okay, let's pack up, okay, we all, boy, look at the gathering we got here, you know, nope, nope, we can't eat leavened bread, because we ain't got time, so everybody's eating crackers, everybody's eating this unleavened bread, but you get down to that seventh day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and you want to talk about something that got their attention, all of a sudden, all those other events, here comes Pharaoh's chariots. And they're hell-bent on killing most of you. Or dragging you back behind a chariot to go back to be a, a slave. And your life is about to come to an end. And what was so great about this Passover thing? What is so wonderful about God pouring judgments on the Egyptians? All he did was irritate the heck out of them, and now they're going to put it on me. So this is a pretty important day. So when God steps in and blocks the chariots, and he parts the Red Sea, and you walk across on dry land, and you stand on the shores and watch Pharaoh's chariots come into the Red Sea, and then you watch God drown them. Of all of the events that have been going on there for the last week, that's the one you go, that's the one that really affected me. That's the one I want to take note of. That was the day I got saved. So there is a rather significant difference between what God teaches us about redemption and the work of the Lamb of God. But there's another thing that has to do with salvation. Now, let's fast forward that because we know the memorialization is based on those events and we know that our faith, when the Messiah came as the real Lamb of God and was sacrificed for us, and the real redemption and the real salvation they were picturing for us, how does that all register with us today? You know, is it just a kind of a religious thing? Or do we recognize the specific day we got saved? Because the Bible calls for a memorialization of the very day you were saved. Maybe I could go back to some of you and say, tell me about your testimony. What day, can you tell me what day you were saved? The children of Israel can tell you it was the 21st of Nisan. It was the seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's when we got saved and we were delivered. So what day were you saved? You know, I'm not sure that a lot of our brethren have been around for a while and know the Lord. I'm not sure they can remember the exact day they got saved. Because it never quite registered with them, did it? When I was uh, 
a young sailor, and I was involved in evangelical ministry and learning how to lead people to the Lord, there was one whole category of training um, that we used to have to do, which was called assurance of salvation. And this was uh, for somebody who had come in and they had called upon the name of the Lord, asked God for forgiveness of their sins, invited the Lord into their life, and had repented of their lifestyle and their sins before. And now they were going to be walking uh, before the Lord. And we started the first steps of trying to teach them about the faith and get them a Bible and teach them how to pray and get in fellowship with other brethren. We're doing all the basics of what we call discipleship. And we had this category called assurance of salvation because we would have a lot of people uh, who would get started and then they would kind of fade off. And it was like, well, that was interesting, that first experience, that first conversation I had with it, but it, it, it's, it's, um, it's um, uh, but other things are happening now. The rest of my life has happened. And so how, you know, and we would have to, and they would get doubts. They begin to doubt, well, now what happened there? And what did I, you know, am I, you know? And so we used to have certain scriptures and we used to, spend time specifically covering this point. Let me uh, teach and, and assure you of your salvation. And we would give scriptures that would reinforce that God had this promise that if you'll repent and you'll believe in him, you'll receive forgiveness and the gift, receive the gift of eternal life. You know, that's what we would do. That's called assurance of salvation. We would uh, kind of shore that up, reinforce those points, get them to accept those things and and be able to keep going, you know, beyond, beyond that. And the reason why we have to do the assurance of salvation thing is because the actual event of getting saved, for most people in the faith, it's really just about, Acknowledging God and going in a different direction. If I could, I'd just super simplify it and I'd say, well, I was in Egypt and now I left Egypt. And for a lot of Christians, it's like, yeah, yeah, I left Egypt and I had a lot of fun while I was there. They had all kinds of different things. And now I'm now I'm a Christian and now I'm in the wilderness and there's no fun and there's nothing, nothing here. And the temptation to go back to Egypt is tremendous. I mean, what's so great about being in the wilderness? There's nothing here except you guys. Um, So that's part of the reason I want to give you, that's part of the reason why the Lord said, in this memorialization process, I need you to emphasize what happened on the eighth day. Or excuse me, the seventh day. I need you to emphasize the seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened I want you to hold a holy convocation, a high Sabbath. I want you to eat a feast to me. I want you to acknowledge what took place. I want that to be part of your ongoing testimony that you can answer, when was I saved out of Egypt? For a lot of us... We don't 
keep that part of the memorialization. And as a result, we need assurance of salvation every once in a while because we've forgotten. It didn't quite register. It didn't quite sink in. It didn't quite hit us what really happened. And that's the reason why, oh, redemption, oh, salvation, oh, they're the same thing. No, they're not. They are not the same thing. There are some very distinct differences. If you don't get it right about the salvation issue, if you don't get it right about that, um, you're going to have a lot of problems in your spiritual walk later on. Um, the children of Israel in ancient times, they were tempted to go back to Egypt. So will you. You are going to be tempted to go back to Egypt and forget all this, run around in the wilderness, this austere new lifestyle we call walking in the faith. Don't get to do a lot of the things that we used to get to do. Not that exciting, in your opinion. And what it is, is there's a failure to understand how incredible this salvation was. So let me offer just a little something for you. Before the Lord did what he did for you, before you accepted his redemption, before you received his salvation, let me go ahead and just kind of tell you what was stacked against you. You were born into this world and immediately were in an unclean place, an unholy place. Stuff had been done by others before you. You had nothing to do with the decisions that took place. This place is corrupted. This place, although it's trying to have life, is full of death. And every one of us in our mortal form have a sure destiny of death in front of us. Every one of us are going to die. About as certain as you standing there on the banks of the Red Sea watching the Egyptian chariots come. At that moment, you are coming to terms with your mortality. Whether you realize it or not, from the moment you're born, you're in that position. You might as well be standing, standing right there on the banks of the Red Sea. Now, some of you are doing what they did. They turned away, didn't pay attention to the chariots. Someone stick their head in the sand. Some of them wanted to throw themselves in the Red Sea and drown because they didn't want to deal with the Pharaoh. And some of them just wanted to act like nothing was happening. And some of them said, oh, let's go give ourselves back up. We'll be slaves again. And you come into this world, and you're just like those people there. And you're starting to make a decision about, okay, what, what is my mortal life going to be back? Am I going to allow myself to be enslaved by sin in the world? I'll, I'll accept that. Or am I going to ignore what's going on? I'm just going to be in complete denial. Or am I going to go ahead and go take the final step? I'll solve the problem. I'll just kill myself. Or some of you are going to go for other falsehoods and other things and try to put a spin on all of this and try to tell yourself, it's okay. The reality is we're all in that situation. 
We're in the just just like they were back at the banks of the Red Sea. You're mortal. You're born in this world. That's where you're at. You've heard the story of redemption. You've heard the testimony of redemption, the Messiah. The Lamb of God has been slain for you. Here you are. Okay, well, that's nice. I, I like that story. I don't mind hanging out with the people that believe in that story. Okay, I'll, I'll believe in that story, but you're not saved yet. Not until you cross the Red Sea. Not until you suddenly discover what God really has done for you. And you see your enemies defeated. Now, there are two elements that I want to elaborate on because this is the way Paul tries to teach some of this. One of the things he says about this life is that we are all working out our salvation. And I really love that expression because he's talking about something that's inside of you working its way outward into your life. In other words... I've accepted the redemption of the Lord. I have the promise of uh, of eternal life and forgiveness of sins. But I'm still in the process here as a mortal. Those things are working their way out into my life and becoming a reality in my life. It's what we call discipleship. You know, we take the person who's accepted the Lord and we're working with him and trying to teach him so that that all those things can be worked their way out into his life. And and, uh, it's called working out your soul and salvation. You're headed toward the goal of salvation, and and you're you're trying to get there. And then the um, the other element that has to do with that is that um, the question is at any given time: Are you saved or not? And I love my Baptist brethren; they have this doctrine called eternal security, which says, "Oh, you're you're already saved." You're already saved. That's it. You know, you're done. Others are going, wait a minute. There's a lot of scripture here that says don't test the Lord. And I like to remind everybody that the children of Israel who had full salvation from God, full redemption from God, a lot of them didn't make it to the promised land. In fact, of that generation that made it, only two made it. The rest were judged and died in the wilderness. You know what that means? They died in their mortal frame. And by the way, here in this world, even though you're a believer, you are subject to your mortality. You are subject to the diseases that exist in this world. You're subject to the sins of others around you. You're subject to your sins. In other words, this isn't the kingdom yet. This is not what the ultimate goal. This is not, quote, the promised land yet. All you get when you get salvation is basically, I don't have to deal with the Egyptians and certain death, and now I have a hope and a promise that I'm on a journey now to the promised land. We're on a journey to the promised land. Because when you get to the promised land, it's a whole nother ballgame, even then. You know what that's called in the scripture? Atonement. That's when you are totally and completely reconciled to God and there is no more separation or division with you and the Lord at all. You are at one with him. 
and we're working toward atonement, but we still don't have it yet. And by the way, I'm still in this mortal frame right now, and I'm still not saved from the elements of the world or disease or other things. And I've got other tribulations in my life, other elements of Egypt, and they're still plaguing me. But I know where I'm going. I know what's supposed to happen. And I know in the end, the Lord is going to do it. I can't do it. I, I can huff and puff all I want, and I cannot blow the waters of the Red Sea and open a thing for me to walk through. But God can. God can make the things happen for us to be successful, not us. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to beat this uh, this point to death. But here we are on the seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a high Sabbath. And I'd like to kind of call upon you as we begin this high Sabbath. Maybe you should reflect on God's salvation. Maybe you should ask yourself the question is, when did he actually do that for me? Like the children of Israel has a specific date. When, when was it for me? And if you're not really certain about that... Maybe while you're eating unleavened bread today for the last day, instead of thinking about pizza you're going to have at the end of this day, maybe you could say, Lord, could you assure within me and show me your gift of deliverance and salvation like you did for my ancestors? And I know I'm still on a journey. I know I'm still in the wilderness. I'm still a mortal. I'm still subject to the things of the world. But I know the goal. I know where we're going. I know we're going to make it to the promised land. Because I have the promise from you that says, I will be passed from death, and I will be resurrected. I will be changed, and I will get to live in the kingdom. So, as I said, I don't want to belabor this point. I just want to encourage you a little bit as you're eating those final bites of unleavened bread. Relish them. Relish them. The Lord has done mighty and good things for us. And on this day, as we eat that final bread, enjoy it in the Lord. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. And the Lord spoken to Moshe and said, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is the way you shall bless the children of Yisrael.
Shalom. Bashir Yeshua HaMashiach, Sarcha Shalom, Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom.